Well, uh, we love our game shows uh, in America. I don't know if you guys like, you have your favorite uh, game shows. Uh, I was doing some research. I was shocked to see how, just how far, uh, how many years these have actually been into existence. Family Feud's been going on for 45 years. I know some of this will make you feel really old. You're like, wait a minute, I wasn't around before. Um, Wheel of Fortune, 46 years. Jeopardy, 57 years. Let's make a deal, 58 years. And the price is right for 65 years with Bob Barker, right? Um, 65 years have been going on. Now, let me just focus on the, one of those game shows for a moment here. And I promise you I am going somewhere with this. Uh, let's look at Let's Make a Deal. If you're familiar with that show, uh, you're familiar with the fact that the audience members have to wear the most ridiculous outfits uh, possible to try to get attention. Um, you can see there may be some, some pictures here on the screen of various um, people dressing up in order to get onto the show, who are very happy, by the way. I like that one. S'mores, you see that? Marshmallow, graham cracker, s'mores. They are very excited. Well, I was unfamiliar with this show, um, honestly. I didn't know this show. I wasn't sitting around watching day, daytime television very often um, with, uh, with four little kids and everything else. So I... Um, I was, uh, as I went through that, I was, I was thinking, uh, unfamiliar I was with the actual show until one day I was going to take my kids to school. They went to elementary school out in LA in Hollywood. And, uh, and all the parking spots were constantly taken up. This is like kindergarten, like the first year I was taking them. Could never find a place to park um, because, because people were blocking up all, the whole street. I mean, I, was, I couldn't get a parking spot because of cows, cheeseburgers, unicorns, and a bottle, a man dressed as a bottle of sriracha sauce took all these places. Like, I'm literally late getting my kids to school because I have to tell them a guy dresses sriracha sauce, <laughs> blocked up the street, and I couldn't get there because the school was literally right next door to the studio. And so people were lying down the street in these crazy outfits every morning trying to get the kids to school. It's a whole new, you know, you say dog ate my homework kind of thing. This was like, I couldn't get there. Bottle of sriracha sauce got in the way. Um, so the, the format, if you're unfamiliar with the show, involves, uh, you get, if members in the, of the audience get selected, usually the ones with the craziest outfits, they're referred to as traitors uh, who make deals with the host. Uh, in most cases, a trade will be offered something of value and given a choice of whether to keep it or to exchange it for a different item. Now the catch is, they don't know what the different item is going to be. It could be something of equal or, or greater value, um, or it could be something referred to as, if you know the show, a zonk. Zonk, zonk, I don't even know how to pronounce the word actually, Z-O-N-K. And, uh, and that is a, basically a worthless item that you're, that you're given. And uh, so you could basically be offered a, a new toaster, and you could exchange that for like a fur-covered garbage can or a cold fish head. You know, you never know what you're going to get. And so, and they get pretty, pretty crazy. And actually, the back lot of the school was covered with all these things that people would make and create to give away as kind of gag gifts. Now, the big deal, the end of the show, serves as the final segment uh, where, the, uh, where there's offered a chance of a significantly larger prize for a lucky trader. The host asked the trader if they wanted to trade in everything they have gotten so far, everything they've won on the show, for a chance to see what is behind door number one, two, or three. Now, one of those doors has something of significant value. The other two, completely worthless, right? So it's a, it's a, it's a bargain. It's a, it's, a, it's a risk here you're trying to take. And honestly, as you watch it, you're trying to figure out, like, it, it's kind of like watching a train wreck when you watch a show. You're like, I can't kick my eyes off this thing. Like, this is so interesting and weird at the same time. Well, we live in kind of a real world, uh, real life, let's make a deal. You can see it all the way back in the Bible, back to Genesis chapter 3, where Adam and Eve were presented with life, presented with beauty, presented with satisfaction, the presence of God, but chose 
to give it all up to see what's behind door number two, right? We feel like we can find a better deal. We can find something more value and worth than what God's given to us and who he is. We can find it somewhere else. And from then on, throughout human history and to this day, we still play Let's Make a Deal. And we turn over what it is value and worth and glory for what is insignificant and unworthy of that. Matter of fact, in the book of Jeremiah, there's a a, a real picturesque kind of view of what this looks like. You can see in Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, God describes it this way. Uh, It's kind of called this, this exchange. He says, be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. So, so this is almost like the picture of God calling all of creation, moon, sun, stars, squirrel, trees. Come over here a second. You gotta, you gotta see this. This is unheard of. This is unbelievable. Can you imagine that people would do this? And he says, my people, humanity, have committed two evils. Okay, you say, what does is, what is God consider the two evils of the world? Here it is. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Okay, desert community, dry, no rain, okay? They have forsaken me. God refers to himself as a fountain of living water, like an oasis in the desert. That's the first evil. They've left me. They've forsaken me. They've, they've exchanged the deal here. They have taken the deal. They've given me up, and they've went behind what's behind door number one, two, or three here. And, they, and here's what's behind the door. They've hewed out cisterns, like bowls, for themselves, try to collect rainwater, right? There's something better out there in the desert. There's a better oasis, a better fountain. I'm gonna keep going, but they're broken cisterns that can hold no water. So the picture is that of humanity is that we, we forsake God, we forsake Jesus, what is a value of worth. We go searching out into the desert land to try to find a better fountain, a better oasis, a better value of water. And we go out there and we, don't, we can't find these, so we create our own little bowls, right? Our own little substitutes. The Bible calls those idols, also referred to as sin. These are, these are our idols. And we finally rains at one time a year. We get a little bit of satisfaction. You're like, oh, this is it. And we go to turn it up to drink. And as we go to drink, it's got holes in the bottom of it. And all the water just seeps into the sand. That's a picture of what sin and idolatry is. This is a picture of the great exchange that we do with God, with the world. So ever since Eden, humanity has been playing this let's make a deal. Exchanging value worth a fountain of living water for sun and desert, thinking we'll find a better version if we just keep searching, right? It's, it's just gonna get better. There's a better value here. In our text today, Paul presents us with a kind of deal. We can either live by faith in Jesus, we can trust him, lean into him, enjoy him, or we can, you know, exchange that and look behind door one, two, or three, right? We can find ourselves, we can find the world and see what we get, and the, as, as he's gonna describe for us, it's just misery, He starts by presenting to us what is behind the doors that we're exchanging Jesus for. And none of them are good. And here's what we're going to find, the the kind of what's behind these three doors. Divine disconnect, historic disappointment, and personal despair. But he's not going to leave us there. He's going to kind of flip the coin over, as it were, show us at the end of the passage here. He's going to tell us that if we keep Jesus, if we keep what God has made us for himself, and don't exchange, we keep the gospel, if we trust Jesus and follow him, we get divine connection Historic joy and personal hope, all right? So let's look at those. This is what we'll look at this morning. So if you want to exchange Jesus, go for what's behind door number one. Let's look at what's behind door number one. Number one, divine disconnect. He begins in verse 10 by saying, for all who rely, that's a key word there, on works of the law are under a curse. Now, it's not that works, you say, what is, what is works? I don't even know what that means. Works is loving and serving people. Is that a bad thing? No, it's not a bad thing. 
Um, is, it, is it bad to give, give to people in need? Is, it, is, it bad, is effort and service to God wrong? No, those things aren't wrong. The problem is that word rely, right? We're going to rely on those things. It's what you're relying on for things like fulfillment, joy, but also things that you're relying on for salvation, forgiveness, justification. Or to put it another way, what are you relying on to make you okay in the eyes of God? What are you relying on to make you okay in the eyes of people? What, what are you banking your life on? What is your life based on? What, and this may be the best way to look at it, what if you lost it would make you feel like you had no life left? Is there, is there something? These are the questions that lay bare the foundations of our life. And hopefully, you can see how even as Christians and followers of Jesus, we can fall into this trap, right? We can fall into the same situation. We can easily confess Jesus as Savior and yet live our life like something else is. We can live life like your boyfriend is your savior, your career is your savior, your bank account is your savior, your children are your savior, the opinions of others are your savior. Well, I confess Jesus, but what really matters to me is the opinions of others, right? What really matters to me is my kids turn out okay. What really matters to me is my marriage stays together. You see, these are good things, but they become ultimate things. So that's what the Bible calls idolatry, which the Bible calls sin, right? We have usurped the value of Jesus. We exchange, given away, and we put value here into this. So the things typically that you fear the most, the things that make you most anxious or angry, the things that make you feel condemned or even possibly prideful on the other side of that coin are the things most likely that have usurped Jesus in your life. They have power over you. you know, the Bible calls these our idols, Another, another word we could call this could be called a, a functional savior. That may be a new word for you. I've used it before with you. This is a daily struggle. We have a tendency to look at life in a very religious way. We don't use the religious terms, and the world doesn't use religious terms, but it operates in a very religious mode because we were, made, we were all made for God, regardless of your confession or creed, okay? We were made for a relationship with God. So we, we all have this. So think about this. So we have, we have functional heavens we want to get into, we have functional hells we want to stay out of, and so we worship and create these functional saviors to hopefully deliver us, right, out of these functional hells into the functional heavens, right? For some, the functional heaven is a relationship, or maybe the functional hell is a relationship, right? I need a savior to get me out of this. So others, it can be success, it can be body image, it can be anything. As a matter of fact, if you just look at a magazine rack as you're going through Kroger and you're checking out, you'll see, you won't see the language of functional heavens and hells and saviors and worship and all that, but it's there. If you take this, you'll, you, you'll get out of this hell and you'll get into this heaven. And it doesn't say hell or heaven, but it basically is the same concepts, the same mode of, of heart and function. Now, Paul says that if you rely on something, whatever that something is, other than Jesus, especially leaning into the fact that you're not a believer, you're not a follower of Jesus, you are under, it says, a curse. Now, that's maybe an interesting language. Like, what, what, is, what is Paul talking about? You know, I, I think of a curse. I think of the curse of the Black Pearl, right, from the Pirates movies. I think of the curse of the ring and the Lord of the Rings. Or if you've seen the, the new Jungle Cruise movie, the curse on the conquistadors, right? I mean, this is like, there's this kind of mystical, weird, like, curse kind of, uh, kind of thing going on there, mysterious, mystical kind of thing. Is that what Paul is talking about? It's not actually what he's talking about at all. The curse is actually more relational than anything. Now, I'm going to explain that because you may not have thought of this in that way, but I'm going to try to help explain this to you. Paul's quoting here from a passage in the Old Testament, a book called Deuteronomy, okay? 
And he's specifically, he's quoting from chapter 27 of that book. And what was going on at that time was that the divine law was being passed down. And the people of Israel were building a monument on a mountain called Ebal with stones, with the law written on them. Okay, so they're on, on this mountaintop and they're packing these stones on top of each other with laws that God has given to them. Remember Moses coming down from the mountain? There were these, all these laws and the other group of Israelites would stand on the mountain on the opposite side. I would love to have seen this, actually, on Mount Gerizim, directly across, and they would shout at each other, okay? And they would read off all these different curses and blessings of the law. Here's the law. If you obey it, you'll be blessed. If you don't, you'll be cursed, kind of idea. So the group on one mountain is pronouncing blessings on those who obey the law. The group on the other side of the mountain are pronouncing curses for disobeying the law. And this is going on back and forth, back and forth. They would say things like, for example, curse be anyone who misleads a blind man on the road. You're like, well, that kind of makes sense. That's a bad idea. You shouldn't do that. Another one would say, curse be anyone who strikes down his neighbor in secret. Right? These are the kind of different rules and laws that they would, they, would, they would give to each other. And the final one, out of all, after all it's done, the final one that they would read off was this one that Paul's quoting here. And, he would, and he would, it was, we'll, we'll seek to obey the law, basically, in every facet of it and achieve its blessings. So Paul was very familiar with these curses, um, not only because uh, he grew up as a Jewish boy hearing them from maybe teachers or parents, but because even as a Christian, he heard these laws written, if you obey them, you'll be blessed. If you don't, you'll be cursed kind of idea. If you remember, or if you're familiar with the, with the book of Acts um, or even 1 Corinthians where Paul t- talks about his kind of sufferings, he was arrested and beaten five different times, lashes in the back of, on his back, uh, 40 lashes minus one. He says this in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four, And the synagogue manuals at the time, though the rules that they had, required that someone read out the curses of the law while the prisoner was being flogged. So they would read one for every 40, and he would get flogged as a result of that. When Paul received the final one on his back, he probably heard the final rule, which was, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. Right? So that's that just always ringing true in the ears of the Jewish people. That was always on top of them. Now, the curse was not necessarily a divine lightning bolt coming down for these people. They would continue to live even when they disobeyed the law. Again, it was more significant than that. It meant at its very core to be under a curse with God meant to lose relationship with God. Okay? Um, the law is always covenantal and relational, okay? not necessarily just moral. We think of law, we just go to the moral actions. The sense of the law was to be relational. It was never given just to be obeyed in and of itself as if they could achieve that. It formed the basis of a relationship. The blessing, you say, what's the blessing of the law? Intimacy, relationship, right? The curse is the loss of a relationship. So when you think of the law of God, think more relationally than just morally. So every relationship, we think about this, every relationship has laws, okay? We, we know how this, we don't call it laws, but this, we kind of have laws and relationships. They're built on kind of laws. Um, a couple, all right, they're, they're together, they're getting serious, they're talking about marriage. She lays out some laws like, you know, I hate romantic comedies, right? And he says, I love romantic comedies. I tear up and I love the snuggle. And she's like, eh. She says, you know, we're going to make a lot of money. I want to support a family. I want to give a lot, of, a, lot of, a lot of way to help other people. He says, well, I want to go into debt and get fancy cars and vacation homes, right? And you're like, yeah, those are different laws, right? 
Uh, she says, I want to live in you know, a different neighborhood, and it, like in the inner city and things. He goes, well, I'm, I'm going to live there. I'm going to have to have a lock on the door and buy a gun. And she's like, what? You know, he asked her to marry her. She says, no, like, I'm not doing this. Like, we're too different. We have different laws. We have different kind of value systems. Like, this is, our intimacy is not going to happen here. We're not going to be able to get married. We're on two totally different levels of communication here. And so the curse was the relationship was broken. The relational laws that they have for each other were broken. Let me give you another example, all right? At the heart of every relationship is a law. Again, kings, for example, back then would say, hey, let's join in battle together. Okay, we have some, um, we, we have some laws here. We have some rules. We're going to join in battle. We're going to go after this other country. And if they agreed on those terms, like, hey, if we win, you get this much land. If I, you know, we'll divvy it up this way. If they agreed on the terms, they joined, right, in relationship against the other country. Um, and so that's kind of the idea. Again, if they agreed, the blessings would be uh, splitting up the, 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 the victor's part. If they couldn't agree, there was separation, right? We're not going to join together. We're going to be separated. That was the curse, quote-unquote, of the, the broken, breaking the laws. So when it comes to our relationship with God, the Bible calls us law breakers. We haven't kept the kind, generous, loving rules that God has given to us in being in a relationship with him, and thus the relationship is broken. We are cut off from God. That's the curse, the broken part, the relationship, and so Paul assumes this is the case for everybody in this passage. As a matter of fact, James would make it pretty clear. He would say it this way, James 2.10, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in just one point is guilty of the whole thing. Why, why is that? You're like, that doesn't seem fair. Like, how are you guilty for the whole thing if you only break one? You broke the relationship. It's broken. The whole thing's broken. You, you don't have like a three-fourths relationship here, right? It's, it's all in or all out. It's 100% relationship or zero. That's why it says it that way. Matter of fact, the Old Testament begins and ends with this kind of curse of a broken relationship. Genesis 3, if you're familiar with that, where Adam and Eve chose to exchange God again for the deal of the world, um, they had a broken relationship. The Old Testament ends in Malachi 4, 6 with the land being cursed because of the people's sin. That's how it ends. Matter of fact, the Old Testament ends so bleakly that many Jewish rabbis actually switch <laughs> Malachi 4, 6 and Malachi 4, 5, which talks about the promise of Elijah coming coming soon, okay, coming in the future. They actually switch them so it's not so bleak and so depressing to end, begin on a curse, end on a curse. It's all about the broke relationship. So Paul's basically telling us that we're in a world of hurt and we're in serious trouble, right? This is a problem. We're, in theology, we call this up a creek without a paddle. No, actually, we call that, we call that total depravity is what we call it. We are messed up, right? The world is messed up because of our sin. Things are broken, okay? Relationships aren't right, we are, we are not in relationship with one another as humanity because of sin. It's not because of bad policies. It's not because of conspiracies or bad leadership. It's because we've cut ourselves off from God, which has resulted in cutting ourselves off from each other. Okay? That's the, the core of the brokenness and why it's there. We're under a, a curse of divine disconnect when we exchange Jesus for whatever's behind door one or two. Well, here's what uh, he goes on to describe what's uh, behind door two. You say, well, I don't like divine disconnect. Let me see what's behind door two. Let me try that one. Well, you find historic disappointment. <laughs> Verse 11, it's evident that no one is justified, there's our key word, before God by the law for the righteous shall live by faith. So Paul goes on to talk about justification. He has talked about justification over and over again in the book of Galatians. He'll continue to do that. Um, and so it means to be declared right with God. It's a judicial type of term. Paul just comes right out and says, look, no one is declared righteous before God. No one is stamped approved on their life before God. Matter of fact, the Old Testament would say this over and over. Paul wasn't making this up. Psalm 33, 13 through 15 says, The Lord looks from heaven 
He sees all the sons of men. It's all of humanity. From his dwelling place, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them. All he who understands all their works. You're like, oh, so God sees everyone. What does he think? Well, Psalm 14, 2 and 3. He looks down from heaven on the children of men to see if there are any who understand. If there's any who seek God. They, they've all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. <laughs> that's, that's significant. God sees you individually this morning, and one day when you die, you will face him individually. It's important that you know this. No spouse, no friend, no friend, no parent, no child, no pastor will stand with you. You want to hear an innocent verdict? Sure you do. You want to be justified for God? Yeah, you do. You say, well, I really don't care about that. Well, you do, actually. Matter of fact, all your attempts of being justified before men, being okay with other people, all your attempts of being validated and confirmed by others is really a smaller version, a small scale of what is going on deeper in your soul of a desire to want to be right with God. To be right with God is to be able to walk in peace, to be free of guilt, to be known like you've never been known before. It's to be able to live a fully transparent life with God like our parents did before the fall ever happened with no fear. I mean, Paul is... Uh, what Paul is getting at here is to live for yourself, to seek to find this justification inside of you or out in the created world is a pointless journey. No one's ever found it. People are still looking. It's to perpetually kind of proverbially hit, the, hit your head against the wall. This world and our own efforts at joy and satisfaction, justification in and of itself, it's kind of like drinking salt water. It doesn't quench your thirst, right? It just makes you more thirsty. And the more you pursue and the more you drink, the thirstier you get. Paul said it's always been this way throughout human history. It's always been this way. That, that, that true joy, satisfaction, justification is found only by grabbing it by faith. You say, how much, how much faith do I need, Chris? Like, how much, how much faith do you have to have, like, in this whole, whole situation? Well, uh, Tim Keller's put it this way in one of his books. He talked about, like, if you're falling off a cliff and there's a branch hanging out, um, how much faith do you have to have for it to save you? Well, I mean, you can... You can look at it, you know, you need enough faith just to grab it. I mean, you can examine it, you can test it out, you can look at it, you can admire it, you can draw it, you can measure the circumference and all that stuff, and you can see if it's a sturdy branch or not. The point is, if you don't grab it, you're going to die, right? You're falling off a cliff like you need to grab the branch. And that's what faith is, just simply grabbing the branch, right? And that, that's why we, we look at that and we say, like, weak faith in a strong object is far superior than strong faith in a weak object. And Jesus is the strongest object there is. So whether you are religiously trying to find joy or irreligiously trying to find joy, it will always delude you. You're chasing kind of a pipe dream. Anything you do to attain in this world is equivalent to fool's gold. We really have no idea what joy is like. We're trying to find it somewhere else. In C.S. Lewis's work, The Weight of Glory, he put it this way. He said, our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, he says, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. We're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. We're far too easily pleased is our problem. We're too easily satisfied with the world. We look behind door number three. We find personal despair. We exchange Jesus for the world. This is what we get. Verse 12 says, the law is, the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Paul simply is saying that the law was never built. It was never designed to establish faith or to bring righteousness or bring joy. There's nothing you can do or can get in this earth, on this earth, that is ever designed to ultimately satisfy you. We're all meant to point to the reality of its creator. So many of us don't believe this, right? We think that if only, you know, if only I get married, we'd be satisfied. If only if I got that job, 
I'd be satisfied. If only if I go there, if I do that, if I have this, I'll be satisfied. Others think and think much more religiously in their, their world. They think, well, if only if I went to church more. If only I gave away more money, you know, I'd be happy. That's what I need, that's what I need to do. Let me fix myself that, direct, that direction. But they all lead to despair. Paul will go on to tell us this in Galatians 3, that the law was supposed to point to our need. The same is true of our efforts at joy in the world. Paul would later call this in the next passage, he calls the law a guardian. Some translations use the word tutor. Um, and so it, what he's basically saying is that, is that don't be shocked when you come up short in life. Don't be shocked that you don't find joy in what you thought you would. The created world and your efforts were never meant to actually satisfy. They were never meant to deliver those things. They were meant to point you to Jesus. Paul goes on to say what happens to the one who decides hard-headedly that they're going to pursue this world. They're going to give up Jesus. They're going to go behind door one, two, or three here. They're going to rely on their own selves, their own works, as he talks about here at the beginning of the passage. Well, he says, if that's the case, you know what? You're going to have to live by them. You're going to have to live by them. In other words, it will destroy you because you can't live up. You can't even live up to your own expectations. You can't even live up to the expectations you have of others, much less trying to live up to the expectations of God himself, right? At the very least, salvation through works will lead to profound anxiety and insecurity because you can never be sure. You can never be sure if you're living up to your standards sufficiently, whatever they may be. This makes you either real sensitive to criticism, it may make you really jealous or intimidated by others who outshine you, it may make you nervous and timid because you're unsure of where you stand or else it may make you very arrogant and boastful because you think you know where you stand, you're better than others. Either way, you live with a sense of curse and condemnation on your soul. In the end, it turns from hopelessness to, to hatred where we blame God for our own folly. Like, you didn't come through. You didn't deliver. We're like a child squeezing an orange and throwing a fit because we want lemonade. It's like, well, it was never meant to deliver lemonade. Like, it's an orange. It's not going to happen. God is saying, I never meant for you to live for the world. It wasn't created for you to, 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 to be your savior, to be your God. You know, these relationships weren't meant to fill the void in your soul. I was meant to do that. It's not, it's not going to work. This is, and, this is, and this is where we end up being bitter and angry and hatred towards God. It's kind of, I was thinking of... Uh, so I was writing this, I was thinking of uh, Ahab obsessed with his hatred of Moby Dick. It totally obsessed him, right? He was so angry at that one, hurling, uh, heaving his harpoon. He said this, he said, uh, Herman Melville talking about Ahab's obsession. He says, towards thee I roll, thou all-destroying but unconquering whale. To the last I grapple with thee, from hell's heart I stab at thee. For hate's sake I spit my last breath at thee. Now, if you've read this, I mean, just completely consumed with this pursuit to words that become not just joy, but absolute hatred. And this is the final result of everyone apart from the grace of God intervening in your life. It's the anthem, honestly, this, this kind of hatred and this, this idea of personal freedom away from God is the anthem of, of hell itself. To live for yourself, to trust in yourself, to find the joy, satisfaction, validation, justification, righteousness, all those terms only lead to divine disconnect, historic disappointment, and personal despair. Sin has torn us apart and we need mending. Sin has killed us, we need resuscitating. And so how, how about we not make a deal? <laughs> how about we not exchange Jesus and keep, right, the gospel? And Paul lays out the hope here at the end of like, so what happens when you don't give up this, if you don't exchange Jesus for the world? He gives us the opposite. We find divine connection. Look at verse 13. Christ redeemed us, that's our key word, redeemed, from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, everyone who is hanged, curses everyone who hanged hanging on a tree. Paul says that Jesus redeemed us 
The, the idea of that language is he bought us as slaves. We were slaves to the world. We were slaves tied to the world and things that we were pursuing. And he, he bought us as slaves to set us free. And it wasn't with money, okay? Didn't pay with money. He paid with his blood, right? He paid, he paid with his life. That's why 1 Peter 1 says, knowing you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, it wasn't money, from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers. In other words, everyone's been doing this throughout history. But with precious blood, as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. So one thing's for certain. And that's we're not saved, we're not redeemed, we're not justified, satisfied by Jesus by some method that cost him absolutely nothing. It cost him everything. You say, how, how, did he, how did he do it? It says here, he removed the curse, which remember, remember now, let's go back to that word we talked about earlier. To be under a curse is to lose relationship, okay? So this is, starting, this is gonna make a lot of sense now as we get into how did Jesus take on the curse for us? Remember the idea is to be cut off, removed. How did, um, but how did he remove the curse? Answer, he became, it says here, a curse for us. Literally, he became the curse on behalf of us, in place of us is the language. He took the curse on himself, but even more than that, he literally became the curse. He became the separated one. He became the lawless one, the rebel in the eyes of the Father. In short, he legally, it talks about in 2 Corinthians, became sin for us. He was thus treated like a murderer. He was treated like a liar, an adulterer, a self-righteous hypocrite. He bears sin not in the sense that he committed it, but in the sense that he took it on himself, on himself. And as a result, what happened when Jesus took the curse on himself? Remember, the curse was broken relationship. What happened to Jesus on the cross? The relationship was broken, right? There was a severing there. Jesus was disconnected from the Father. He was cut off. This is, explains why in the Gospels, when Jesus was about to die, he's on the cross, he looks up to his Father, who he had always, throughout the Gospels, if you read the four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you find this constant communication between Father and Son and Father and Son. And the language, by the way, is always Father, Always Father. He's referring to Jesus, talks to him, it's always the Father. And then we find this crazy statement, Matthew 27, 46. He looks up, he has become sin for us. The relationship is broken. He took, takes on the curse, relationship is broken. He says, my God, my God, where's Father? It's not anymore. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He took on the curse. The relationship has changed. The curse wasn't the nails in his hands. It was the hole in his soul where his Father was. Now, because Jesus took my sin, I now get his righteousness as a result. He took my place. And because he took my hell, I get his heaven. This is what we call this doctrine of imputation. It's, it's an exchange. We talked about earlier, we do our own exchange. We give up Jesus for the world. We exchange him to see what's better behind door one, two, or three. Jesus does the same thing. He exchanges his. He takes, he, we get his righteousness. It's an unfair exchange. We get the good side of this deal. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him, the Father, made him a new no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteous of God in him. You know how important that is? You may not think about it this way. You need the righteousness of Christ. Not just the forgiveness. I know we always think about it in terms of forgiveness here, but there's a righteousness that's needed. If you don't get the right, in salvation, if you don't get the righteousness of Jesus and you only get forgiveness, the idea is that God just kind of wipes the slate clean and goes like, all right, all right, let me, let me forgive. Let me expunge your record. Here's a new start, right? Wipe the slate clean. Go get them now. And you're like, oh, okay, hopefully I get a second try at this one. Hopefully I do okay, right? That's just plain forgiveness. You need something imputed to you. You need like your record move forward to be right. And that's what righteousness, that's what this imputation is, the righteousness of Christ. We get him. 
right? So um, again, it's more relational than moral here. So Romans 8.1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That's why. Because why? Why is there no condemnation for those in Christ? Why isn't it just my past is forgiven and now I gotta work really hard to keep that relationship? Why is that? Because I've received the righteousness of Christ. It's not just that the, I've been given a second chance. <laughs> it's, it's that I've been given the pre- perfect righteousness of Christ forever forward. So my record is always in the sight of God, Jesus' record, which was perfect. Now, why does Paul here in our passage quote another passage here? He quotes from Deuteronomy again. This time he goes back to chapter 21. This whole curse is he who hangs on a tree. Like, why did he add that? In the Old Testament, when a person was executed, okay, uh, it was usually by stoning. Is usually how that happened. And the body was then hung on a tree as a symbol of divine rejection. It was not that the man was, was, um, was cursed because he was hung. That wasn't the idea. But rather, he was hung as a sign of his curse. The point of hoisting a criminal in this way was to expose his crime to public shame. Okay, so think about that and think about what Jesus died on. It's a startling statement by Paul. It's shocking. Before Jesus, the cross was not a symbol of conquest, okay? It was a symbol of being conquered. The cross was a, we could almost call it, it was like a rope. It was a gas chamber. It was a firing squad. It was a guillotine. That's what the cross was. It was a means of execution. The cross didn't mean you won, The cross meant you lost. It wasn't about strength. It was about weakness. But because Jesus took our curse, our separation from God, the cross now becomes something marvelous. It's completely changed. And Paul, along with the other apostles, they didn't avoid this truth. They didn't try to hide this fact. They actually proclaimed this truth. Matter of fact, you go to Acts 5, Acts 13, 1 Peter 2, they all even specifically use the word tree when they talk about Jesus' death. Don't even talk about his dying on the cross. He died on a tree. Almost echoing boasting of the fact of what he had done. This is highly offensive to Jewish people because at the very heart was a message of a man hanging on a tree, the message about a Messiah rejected by God and despised by men. And yet the apostles were like, we know. Isn't that beautiful? He did it for us. He did it for us. So did Jesus have to die on a cross? Could he have been drowned in the Sea of Galilee, hurled off the edge of a cliff, butchered as a young child? Um, could that have happened? No. He had to die on a cross. Paul's citation of Deuteronomy here shows that there was nothing accidental, there was nothing coincidental about the death of Jesus. We see over and over again, it t- tells us that his time had not yet come yet. They couldn't kill him yet because he had to go to a cross. Timothy George, commentator on the book of Galatians, says this, the cross was, never, was neither an accident of history nor divine emergency measure brought in to remedy an unforeseen situation. There was a cross in the heart of God from all eternity. For Jesus was the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. Well, the next thing we get here is historic joy. He says in verse 14, so then Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. We believe and trust in Christ. We stop living for ourselves. We get the blessing joy that all the followers of Jesus have had throughout history. That's why Paul connects back to Abraham. He'll do this a lot. Right? We get the same joy. You say Abraham had joy. Yeah, listen to this, Hebrews 11. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them, greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to call be called their God, for he was prepared, he's prepared a city for them. 
This is important. This is kind of like Paul's echoing back to like Abraham. Like, yeah, this, this joy he had too. Like the, all the people who have gone before us have had that. This is a, I always talk to you about reading biography, right? Go grab a book, read biography, read about people who've gone before you've loved Jesus. is super important, right? This is what they did. The, and that's what Paul is t- telling us here. He, said, he says, you, you, was Abraham a follower of Jesus? Yeah, he was around way, but you say, wait a minute, Abraham was, a, was around way before Jesus. How is that possible? Well, Jesus would say this, John 8, 56, your father, Abraham, speaking to the Jewish people, what did he do? He rejoiced, right? He rejoiced to see my day. He saw it. He was glad. Just like they, they looked forward, we look back. That's what they experienced. Lastly, personal hope. Verse 14 says, so we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So as a result of faith in Christ, choosing not to exchange Jesus for ourselves or choosing not to make a deal with the world, we get, it says here, the promised Holy Spirit, which may not seem like a big deal. It may seem maybe, maybe strange even, the language. But we get God. That's the beauty of the gospel. I always think of John Piper's book. Like, God is the gospel. Like it is, we get him. We get relate. It's all about relationship here. It's not, not just about what we get in other things. It's a relationship with God that we get. The Holy Spirit of God was promised and looked forward to for so many generations. Just listen, Ezekiel 36, back hundreds of years before Jesus, says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you'll be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. Jesus would say this, John 14, 26, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he'll teach you all things. And bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Paul would later say in the book of Romans, hope, chapter five, verse five, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. Romans eight fifteen, if you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, you've received the spirit of adoption as sons whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness that our spirit that we are children of God. And then lastly, Ephesians chapter one Paul writes this way, he says, In him, speaking of Jesus, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge, a guarantee, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. This is the promise we get. We get God. So listen, you don't, you don't want to make a deal with the world. You don't, want, to, you don't want, want what's behind door one, two, or three. You want, you need Jesus, don't exchange joy for misery. Don't exchange value for trash. Don't exchange glory for insignificance. This is, this is eternally important, and I would do you a disservice if I didn't explain the whole story here to the very end, because you have to understand that if you choose to make a deal permanently, if you choose to go behind the doors, if you want to exchange Jesus for a lie, if you want to be master of your own fate, captain of your own soul, then no, it isn't just for this life. It's for all eternity. There's a real place called hell. And hell is, understand, hell is the current trajectory of a soul's exchange of Jesus now. It's the current trajectory of your soul's exchange of Jesus for yourself and the world. And so hell not, is not as some medieval art or whatever else you think of. You think of hell as like a bunch of people in a big fire bowl begging to get out. You know, they want to get out of there. It's not the case at all. It's a real, it's an eternal place where people go. They aren't just sent there by Jesus. They want to go there because they want to be, hell is separation from God. It's the ultimate curse. It is the ultimate separation from God for all eternity. Hell is God actively giving us what we always wanted, our own way, our own selves, to be master of our faith, captain of our own souls. 
It's God banishing us to regions we have desperately tried to get into our whole life. We've been looking behind door one, two, and three, and God says, fine, you want it behind, here's door four. You can have it. Do you want to be away from me? Go right ahead. That's why I love, C.S. Lewis has put it very simply. He said, look, hell emerges as the greatest monument to human freedom. It's the greatest monument to human freedom. We, have, we, have, we want to be away from God. God says, here you go. For all eternity, you can have not God, and it's not good. Note today that if you choose to live for yourself, you'll be choosing a life apart from Jesus, which ultimately finds itself in a real place called hell, an eternal trajectory of the disconnect, disappointment, and despair you're already feeling right now. But Christian, understand infinite joy has been given to you. Stop choosing, as Lewis would talk about, the mud pies of the world. Remember your Savior who has connected you to God. Take advantage of that by communing with him. He's given you joy and hope that does not disappoint. During communion, as we take that as followers of Christ, we take the opportunity today to reflect on the things maybe you're tempted to exchange Jesus for. This is one of the reasons we come to church on Sunday, right? To remember, oh yeah, I think I just spent this whole week exchanging Jesus for fill in the blank, right? What are the things that tempt you that is a value of worth that is better than Jesus? And it doesn't have to be bad things in themselves. Many times they're good things, again, that we make into ultimate things. What are those things that have usurped the place of Jesus in your soul? Money, power, fame, relationships, people's opinions, <laughs> whatever it may be, right? As we take communion, that's what we do to remember. We remember Jesus who, was, who, who took on the curse for us, who died on that tree for us, that bread, that juice was, is there to help us remember his body and blood broken and poured out for us. We do in remembrance of him. If you're not a follower of Jesus, it's not for you, but we would love to talk to you and answer any questions you might have. Let me pray for us, um, and then you may take communion with